My name is Amanda Kasseri. Uh, my pronouns are she, her. Today is November 18th, and I'm speaking with Alana Hashman, um, who I originally met, I think, at PyCon, um, maybe in like 2019, yes. uh, because we started nerding out together over open source and its complexities. Um, and we are recording this conversation for open source stories. I am in an office in New England, which is lit much better now than it was a few weeks ago. Um, and when I think about connecting with people in open source, I tend to think about talking with people, not just using social media, but also trying to find where are the lists and communication platforms that people work on, because they all seem to be so different and have their own cultures and conversations. Um, and it's interesting to see the way that different people communicate on different platforms. Um, so Alana, would you mind uh, introducing yourself, please? Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, my name is Alana Hashman. Uh, you can use uh, she or her pronouns for me, or they is also fine. Uh, I have been working on open source. I've been using open source since I was a teenager. I made my first contribution to open source in 2014. So I've been working in open source for almost a decade. I've been using it for almost two decades. Uh, and I don't know what else I should introduce myself with. Sure. So uh, I guess that I can write this down next time. But the warm up question maybe of like, um, when you think about interacting with people in open source, where do you go and how do you interact with people? That's a great question. Uh, it depends on the project. Every project is unique. Every project has its own sort of flow of things. So uh, in Debian, I might be interacting with people uh, asynchronously on IRC. I might be communicating via mailing lists, uh, some of which are mailman, some of which are not. Uh, I might be communicating via the bug tracker, which is email-based. Uh, if I look at a project like Kubernetes, I'm probably going to be communicating with people on Slack, uh, which is the official project chat platform. Uh, but I might also be communicating with people uh, on GitHub, where the project does development, either in GitHub issues and pull requests, that kind of thing. Uh, I might be using Google Groups, which uh, the Kubernetes project uses for its mailing list. Uh, I might be using Zoom and having video meetings with people. I might be using Jitsi if I'm going on a Debian video meeting. Uh, and in any case, I hope to see people in person, and I might be doing that at a conference. So that is at least in a couple of the larger projects that I've been in where I might find people, like having met you at PyCon. So that is a lot of different places to keep track of conversations, cultural threads, community norms. Have you found that there's large differences when you're working with different communities in the different ways that they communicate? Or is it kind of like pretty much the same across? I would say that there are pretty big cultural trends. Uh, so almost every platform has some form of asynchronous chat communication. So that might be IRC channels, that might be Matrix, that might be Discord, that might be Slack, uh, could be any number of these things, but some sort of way to send each other real-time chat messages. Uh, and then most projects have some sort of repository for their source code. That might be GitHub, that might be GitLab, that might be self-hosted, uh, that might be a clone of GitHub like Gitea. Um, that might be, uh, so Debian runs, uh, used to run like a clone of 
I don't even know what it was called. It was called Alioth. It's been long retired, and I was very happy when it was retired instead uh, for what we call Salsa, which is a GitLab uh, instance. So uh you know you're going to have and then those platforms give you tools uh for issue tracking which when i first got started in open source typically were totally separate tools from where you hosted your git repository like you might have used roundup or track or any number of these sorts of things now that tends to live also with where the code is um then there's also like documentation for your project and you know that might live in a, any number of platforms but like it could live on alongside your code in the git repository it could live in like google docs it could live uh in like ether pads that end up getting like you know copied and committed into a repo somewhere uh like fundamentally there are kind of all of these big things that all projects have in common like they have asynchronous chat they have some kind of mailing list which is uh I'm sorry, they have synchronous chat. They have asynchronous mailing lists where you know people might post messages or announcements. They have a place where their code is stored. They have a place where you can report issues and triage those things and so on and so forth. Uh, they have documentation for the project. Uh, but then like what those platforms look like for every project, those are where you tend to see the differences. And so if you kind of learn like, these are the major things that I need to know for how to communicate within the project, the tools themselves don't really matter that much. So you mentioned you first got started with open source in 2014. How did you like did you know where to find everything then when you first started working on no. committing? What was that? <laughs> Not <like>? at all. <laughs> also, uh, I mean, I got started because I went and attended a conference. Uh, I it was the Grace Hopper celebration. Uh, and I sat down at a lunch table. One of them was open source themed. And I was like, well, you know, I use all this open source. I literally sat down at this lunch table and I pop open my Linux laptop with like my email. And I am a giant nerdy university student and I have like Alpine and I'm like sitting there doing my email. And this guy comes over and he sits down next to me and he's like, is that Alpine? And I'm like, yeah. He's like, is that a Debian system? I'm like, Linux Mint, so yeah. He's like, hi, my name's Ashish. I'm the Alpine maintainer in Debian. And I was like, what? Uh, and so, uh, you know, he asked me like, well, like what brings you to the open source table? I was like, well, I've been using all of this open source software for many years, like I'm a university sysadmin, but like, you know, like I run my own email even, but like, I don't really know uh, like how to contribute or anything like that. And there's just open source days for the, at the conference. So I figured I'd sign up and see what happened. Uh, and he's like, you have to contribute to our project. Uh, and our project in this case, uh, Ashish Laroya and Carol Willing were there to uh, represent the Open Hatch project, uh, which incidentally was a project dedicated to getting newcomers involved in contributing to open source software. Uh, and so I think like at the time I had been matched with WordPress and I didn't know PHP. And so they actually got me reassigned from WordPress to OpenHatch. And I attempted to make my first bug fix that day. Uh, and it turned out it was way more complicated than uh, initially like at first glance. So I couldn't actually submit the patch before I had to run to the airport. Uh, but we kept in touch and uh, I joined all of their IRC channels and I ended up uh, becoming their Google Summer of Code student uh, in 2014. Uh, so this was Grace Hopper in 2013, I think. And that was really exciting. And I effectively became the maintainer of OpenHatch, like probably one of the only major active maintainers for 
uh, a couple of years, uh, like uh, maybe not quite that long, but uh, certainly until I graduated and took a full-time job. Uh, and that was really exciting. And I kind of like, once I made the first contribution, everything after that was just like, oh, well, I already know how to do this stuff. So I'll just need to like, you know, figure out what this particular project does for these particular things. That's awesome. I, I feel like so many people that I really like have a Carol Willing story of something like as something as an amplifier or a booster or a welcomer or just like there's always some connection of like, how did your journey in open source continue? And at some point along the way, it's like, oh, well, Carol was there at some point. Carol me. is so <laughs> wonderful. So wonderful. Like she has really been a guiding light. Uh, I, I think anything like that is sort of Python related, like she's there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she's just such an amazing, an amazing person who who I feel like really like looks at where people are and tries to understand where you are and where you want to go and not where her vision is for like a dedicated path for anybody, which I always appreciate. Um, yeah, I mean, Carol told me I, I struggled immensely with like early career stuff and early open source stuff. And she just kept telling me, Alana, they're gonna keep trying to put you in a box, but you do not want to be put in a box. So like, you just have to keep persevering until they will stop putting you in a box and then you'll be okay. And indeed, that seems to kind of be where things have gone. I feel like that's super solid advice for open source in general, is that like the boxes that people try to put you in are just some kind of construct that you just really don't need to be fitting into in order to find a place. It's so weird because like when I graduated, uh, I had like a math degree, I had a computer science minor, uh, I had been contributing to open source, I had done a number of internships and co-op semesters where I had worked as a software developer. Uh, and I also like operated all of these machines as a university sysadmin for the computer science club. And I also was doing all of these extracurricular things on campus, organizing activities for both like the computer science club and the undergraduate uh, woman in computer science organization, which I actually founded uh, the undergraduate chapter of. And like I had all of these skills and I tried to find new grad jobs and like these big companies were just like, well, we want you to be a suite. Uh, we want you to be a software engineer and like write software according to these specifications. And I was like, but I don't just want to do that. I want to do all of these other things. And so I thought, well, like, maybe I'm going to have to like be a manager to do those things. Or maybe I'm going to have to be like a, a program manager or something like that. Like, it doesn't seem like I can do these things as an engineer. Uh, and I ended up taking a job initially as a software engineer. Uh, before a year was up, I got moved into the operations team to write software as an operationally focused software engineer. Uh, I later went and worked as an SRE full time uh, and did that, uh, eventually became an SRE tech lead. Uh, and now I've switched back to writing software full time uh, as uh, an open source software engineer. So like, the, the interesting thing, I guess, was like going through that career, like what principal engineering looks like is much closer to the things that I really wanted to do right outside of university. But like that wasn't an option given to me because people said, well, you don't have enough experience. You can't possibly do those things. Uh, like, you know, we need you to do this one thing. Uh, and now I can do all of the things. So that has been that has been very refreshing. So, so speaking of describing things that you that are challenging to encapsulate in like one solid concept, 
how do you describe open source to somebody who's not familiar with it? Ah, uh, open source. I So I recently gave a keynote at the SEAL conference and uh, I was trying to think about like the things that I liked about open source because there's like, like everything, there's things that you like and there's things that you don't like. And sort of at its most fundamental, like open source is about sharing source code, but like, you know, uh, an open source license is not sufficient for an open source community. And so to me, like open source uh, as like a more broad concept isn't merely about sharing the source code. It's about like all of these other things uh, that sort of come along with them. Uh, and I talked a little bit uh, when I uh, put together this talk for Siegel about like, I think kind of like, eight or nine different things that like I thought of really when I thought of open source, like to empower people with technology and to nurture user consent and choice, uh, to support digital autonomy, to serve people and share labor and to give that labor freely, uh, you know, things like that, uh, to be accountable in public, to be transparent, uh, to rethink artificial limitations that we put upon ourselves by us, I say intellectual property law. Uh, and to be creative to, and fundamentally to liberate people from repetitive toil. Like that is what I think the promise of computing is, right? Like I want to be able to get the computer to do the things that I don't want to. So then I can go and spend the time on the things that I do want to do. So. Do you think that that open source, that, like that description of open source was that the way that it started or the way that you first experienced everything? Or is that an evolving process that's still continuing? I think that there are so many people in the open source community, everybody is gonna give you a different answer to that question. And I think that's a good thing. Um, like, I don't think that there's one sort of single origin of the movement. And I know that when I first started using open source software as a teenager, like to me, like, these were all these like wonderful ideas that I had in my head. Like, it's so incredible that like, I've been kind of locked down and at the mercy of the software, which I have to use, but I have no control over for so long. And now I get to use these things and like, I can change it and I can understand it and I can see what it's doing. Uh, and like, if, you know, for example, it's like, sending creepy data about me that I don't want to be sent. Like I can tell it not to do that because I can look into the internals and I can see it's doing that. And it was very empowering. And like, especially as a teenager, like I didn't have necessarily a lot of autonomy as a teenager, right? Like you potentially, uh, I lived in a suburb. I lived a pretty like sheltered enclosed life. And so that was one place that I could assert that sort of thing. How did you first get open, like how'd you get into open source when you first started using it? Was it like, was it handed to you on your laptop to begin with? Did you go through uh, and rewrite everything? Like a little like bit. Oh, no, 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 I didn't rewrite anything. Uh, honestly, like I didn't really write any working software until I went to university. I had tinkered a bunch, but like there were just fundamentals that I could not get on my own that were so opaque that like I really needed to go and take a university CS class. Like I didn't understand that the command line even existed when I was like a 12 year old reading books on how to like, you know, here's how you compile your Java program. And I'm like, okay, I wrote all this text and I like double clicked it and it didn't work. Why isn't it working? 
right? Because <laughs> like, what does a 12 year old know about the command line having never touched right. one before? Someone's got to show that to you. Uh, right. And so there were like, there's stuff like that where I just got stuck. Uh, but I think the first thing that I used that was open source was Firefox. And uh, I thought it was very cool because it was much faster than Internet Explorer and it had all these cool add-ons so you could customize it and you could get it to like make all of the bad JavaScript that was like making your web pages even slower go away. And for the most part back then you could do that and things would still work. Yeah. Uh, so like, I was like, wow, like, look at this, this is so cool. And I mean, if you look at like the sorts of branding like around open source software back then, that must've been like 2004, right? And at 2004, like open source hadn't won per se. <laughs> so like if you were using open source, people would tell you, right? Uh, mm -hmm. And like the whole Firefox slogan at the time was rediscover the web, right? It's like rediscover it. Like it's theirs, it's yours for the taking. Like this is, you know, golden age of blogging and RSS and that kind of thing. Um, and I don't know, like there's just something really like really visionary and positive and warm about that, uh, that like, you know, uh, dealing with like software that for example, would like limit my access to things on the internet or limit my time to be able to access a computer, which were definitely things that I dealt with a lot growing up. Like that was yeah. kind of the, the opposite uh, and uh, very liberating. Do you feel like that stance, that same promise of open source exists today or is it a different promise for you? I want it to. Okay. <laughs> uh, I mean, like, I think in a lot of cases it can be. I think the fundamentals are there. I think that a big difference between say like now and 2004 is like back then, you know, and it's sort of ironic almost even going back and looking at it because you think like, oh yeah, Firefox, as though Firefox wasn't like funded from a bunch of technology venture capital. Uh, but like, uh, you know, today, like when I look at sort of the big players in the open source ecosystem, you look at like the largest projects in open source, uh, say like the Linux kernel or Kubernetes or things like that. And generally like they are all corporate pushed, they are all corporate funded and they are mostly corporate control. Um, and like to me, that wasn't really so much about that because like the interests then are not necessarily that of end users, uh, but rather like that of like what the corporate interests are. And a lot of the times like that might be great. That might be, we're helping our customers, but then, you know, who are the customers, right? Uh, and a lot of the times like those customers are military industrial complex places and, um, I just don't want the software that I write to be used for killing people. Like that's just not a thing that I'm on this earth to do. Uh, and so like when working on things like platforms and then seeing that like, oh yes, like the DOD is very interested in using this platform to increase their lethality. Like that makes it a little bit more complicated than like, yay, I get to work on this thing with all of my friends that I have now made because I can talk to anyone on the globe and we can all work on this together and anyone can have access to it. It doesn't matter what their means are. Uh, it's it's difficult, but on the same hand, like the promise is still there. Uh, you know, I was thinking about uh, recently, a friend of mine was talking about a company uh, that uh, they were interviewing with where it was like, drone medication delivery or like drone blood delivery, right? So like, you know, you have blood donations and you need to get them to remote places. There isn't necessarily the infrastructure to get them there. 
Uh, and like thinking of you know the the natural disasters, like we recently had uh, terrible rainstorms that cut off much of British Columbia from like the rest of Canada, uh, just north of me in Seattle, Washington. And uh, me being from Canada, this is like near and dear to my heart and thinking like, okay, well, how could we use this technology that like exists and is open and is there to like, rather than, you know, like programming a drone to kill people, how can we use that to like deliver things to people where the roads are out? Uh, or like, how do we use this to like communicate over long distances when like fundamental infrastructure is down? Uh, I also have a ham radio license. So like that uh, is also kind of near and dear to my heart. Like, what do we do when, you know, the internet goes down, the hams uh, get deployed? I think that's what happens. <laughs> yeah, I think that's actually part of the, the protocol for it, right? It's like, yeah, thinking about when information systems that we rely on every day are all of a sudden gone, what else can we do? Like, how else do we connect with Yeah, people? I'm unfortunately not an ARIES member, although it's something that I thought of joining, uh, the Amateur Radio Emergency Service. Uh, and so like, that's, uh, those are the sorts of things that I think like, it could be really cool if we did this sort of thing in open source, like we can build better communities together in these ways. And like, that promise is still there. Uh, but like, on the flip side, you know, the systems that exist are still going to exist, like those power structures that generally dictate the way that uh, money will flow or like the, that the economy will proceed. Uh, those structures are there and, you know, they seem somewhat insurmountable, right? Like one has to uh, earn their daily bread. Uh, but like, I don't know, uh, as they say, the divine right of kings was once considered immutable and uh, here we are. So. Yeah, it's it's fascinating to hear the conversation from you two around fundamental infrastructure and systems because especially all the projects that you name that you've worked on so far are core infrastructure projects for some very large systems, including systems that actually run a majority of the world, that part too. So as you've been working on these systems and like carrying this view of what's been happening in open source for a while now, I'm curious if you've seen any major shifts, like has there been a major event that's happened which has fundamentally changed open source like since that event in a systemic way? That's a really good question. I think there are a couple of cultural changes that I've kind of seen from uh, when I first started working in open source to like where I am now. So one of those changes is I think the widespread adoption of codes of conduct. Uh, like previously those were really pushed back upon. And uh, like, I think that there's still like a small minority of individuals who believe that like they're not necessary or that like they're actively harmful. And uh, in my experience, that is not so much the case. Having codes of conduct and in particular, not just having the document, but having a well-trained, friendly uh, and good enforcement team that can help ensure that like everybody has a good outcome from a negative interaction. Uh, that has really changed the playing field in a lot of these big con, uh, projects within open source. Like when I look at the Linux kernel, which when it initially was sort of like posed at the idea of adopting a code of conduct, literally adopted a document called the code of conflict uh, as though conflict was inherent and perhaps even good and necessary within open source interactions. Uh, like to go from there uh, to 
where we're at now where I joined a project like Kubernetes and there's just such a good culture in terms of like, uh, I've had a lot of negative interactions when I go and I submit a pull request to a project and they might say like, what the heck are you doing that for? Or like, that's so stupid. Like, you didn't you know X, Y, and Z? Like, no, I haven't interacted with the project before. I didn't know all those things. Kubernetes would never tolerate any of those things. Uh, and a lot of the time when I've seen negative interactions within the project, those at even the like highest levels of leadership will say, we don't do that here. That's not okay. Uh, and so like seeing that cultural shift uh, over the years and addressing that sort of, it's like cultural debt, uh, organizational debt, uh, as opposed to like technical debt, uh, that has been good uh, overall, I think. And I hope that it will improve the ability of open source to reach everyone, not just like a certain privileged small slice of the community. The other thing that I've seen uh, sort of like in tandem with that is like holding bad people accountable for their behavior. Uh, and so uh, like there's a couple of things that I can think of just in the past year, uh, specifically like uh, Richard Stallman is widely considered to be the father of the free software movement and is also not a particularly nice fellow, uh, has been accused of sexual harassment by multiple individuals and frankly has not really done anything in over a decade. It's mostly just been really disruptive blog posts, which make a lot of people feel really terrible because they're just not reasonable things to write in polite company. And, uh, like, you know, we saw in uh, 2019, based on some of the really awful things that he wrote uh, about like Epstein and his associates, uh, he was removed from the board of the FSF and from his presidential position. Uh, and then he was reinstated recently. And uh, I and a number of people uh, organized a petition to say, no, like this isn't okay. We need to hold people accountable for this behavior. We can't just say like, oh, you know, enough time has passed, everybody's forgotten about it. Like, we don't see any evidence that the people that he's harmed have had that addressed in a meaningful way. He cannot be in a leadership position so long as he refuses to address these things. And I was like really shocked at how much of the community mobilized behind us. Like, I think there were a group of a dozen of us who organized this open letter and we had over like an outrageous number of signatures, like I think 3,000 signatures or something like that. We organized the whole thing on GitHub. So it was all like in and of itself an open source project. And we had like over a dozen translations contributed. It was really great. Um, I think you, you stopped taking signatures after like 24 hours, right? Oh, because God. the pull request. It was, was so many. I think it was about a week. Yeah, it, we were just totally, <laughs> totally overwhelmed. And we also got to test uh, like GitHub's moderation tools. We took them to their limit. Uh, because uh, we soon discovered how much work uh, it was going to be in order to like ensure a good environment for people to be able to contribute. Uh, so we saw, for example, like all sorts of like brigading accounts. Uh, we had like basically 24 hour people monitoring GitHub for abuse and we had like a one hour SLA uh, and we had a team handing off amongst each other and like no particular person had to like deal with the whole thing or be the figurehead. Like when people started to get stressed, we tapped them out. Uh, and so like, it was really exciting to be able to do something like that. Uh, to be able to organize all of these people or together, we said like, look, like we've all been doing this thing. We want this to be a safe, welcoming environment. We need to hold people accountable for their behavior, whether or not they're really famous. 
Uh, and similarly, like uh, not so much in the area of fame, but an individual who I will not name, uh, Debian recently released a statement on because this individual has been harassing like a very large number of project members very publicly, sometimes like with calls to violence. And like that sort of thing just used to be tolerated within open source. Like that was just the cost of doing business. Like I remember, I think Leonard Puttering, who's the author of System D and a number of other uh, utilities uh, originally, uh, he was tweeting about all the death threats that he got for like writing the software. I mean, like, I don't want to work in an industry where it's like I throw something out there and I get death threats. Like, that's totally unacceptable. But that was just considered to be like the cost of doing business for so long. So I'm really glad that as open source uh, welcomes more of the world uh, into uh, its circles, that we're seeing that sort of thing meaningfully addressed and in ways that like a majority of people get behind it. And we're not just leaving individuals out to dry to deal with that sort of harassment. Yeah, I think it's been wonderful to see even just the time that I've been involved in technology and open source, the, the change of moving from people uh, talking about what should and should not be done that is acceptable in an environment, in a community, to creating structures and organization and coming together with collective action to really fundamentally make those changes. There was research done by actually one of my peers at, uh, at UVM, uh, a group of people that they found the, the best possible counter to organized hate speech is organized counter hate speech. So the idea that like you can't uh, you can't fragment when people are organized in a specific way and targeting people in a way that is hurtful and harmful as a community. Like you have to have that organization, that structure, and not just the power of numbers, but also a way to like fundamentally counter that so that they can't succeed and take over as a minority in an, in an environment. We actually had like a surprisingly heartening example of that sort of thing. Uh, so one of the things that I had to put up, uh, which was a little bit disappointing, uh, was uh, basically a way for people to be able to redact their emails uh, when they put git commits into this like letter when they signed it, because some people were concerned about getting hate mail. Uh, but one person like went and took the entire git log and the funny thing was i think i had like redacted my email for everything too so like i didn't even get this um but like one person scraped everything and sent this like a bunch of these horrible hate messages but the thing was they like put everybody in the two line and so like they sent these like horrendous hate messages but then everybody who like signed the letter just like went back and started dunking on them kind of collectively and like initially you know it's like oh, like, it's terrible to get hate mail, right? But like, then these people started like finding community just out of dunking on the people who were being like totally asinine in response. Um, and like, I was lucky in that, uh, you know, I think at some point I was relatively visible uh, as one of the people who was like, I think merging a large number of the pull requests coming into the repo. Uh, and like, there was, uh, there were not such great people like talking about this uh, to the point where like I spent a weekend where I had prepared for like my address to be leaked and for people to show up at my apartment kind of thing. Uh, and so like had to contact like building security and uh, like spend a bunch of time like cleaning up any loose ends of OPSEC and that kind of thing. And like, I don't want people to have to work in an industry where 
if you want to say, hey, defending pedophiles may be not so great, you, maybe you shouldn't be the president of an important board if you're gonna just go on the record on your blog and do that and refuse to apologize. Like, apparently like that, the consequences for that are people will try to leak your address and like physically harm you and like generally send you threats. I'm like, I don't want that to be an industry that anybody works in. And like, it's so difficult, like, you know, for example, trying to explain it to my parents because they're just like, well, why does any, like, you know, how do these people even know who you are? Like, you're not a celebrity, right? You're not like, I don't know, you're not Lil Nas X or something, right? Like, how do they even know you exist? Like, we as a society, we have this collective idea of, okay, like maybe celebrities, that's sort of a thing that happens, but they're pretty like wealthy and like they have teams that deal with this and like that's kind of a solved problem for them. People don't think of like, normal boring people having to deal with hate mobs as much and it's very very common uh within open source and i think also to some extent like journalism and other fields that involve being very publicly facing do you think like when you think about what we ask from people these days in terms of that public facing the ability to become uh, a target of uh, a group or a movement because of the work that you're doing, like you said, in a way, in a system that is designed to be visible and transparent, like, are we asking too much of people in that visible and that transparency? Or do we just need to do a better job with either the systems we create or the culture that we're keeping stable? It's really difficult because I think that fundamentally, no matter where you are right now and where you wanna go, there's a transition period, right? And so the people who like want to get from point A to point B, when we're not already at point B, inevitably are going to take on some costs for that. And so I might be one of those people. I think that like part of the problem is that there's just no accountability for like that kind of thing. There's very little accountability for hate speech. Uh, and I don't mean that in like a, you know, uh, like you write something like I hate chocolate ice cream on like mastodon.social and then everybody is like, wow, you're the worst person ever. Nobody ever wants to talk to you again. Like that wouldn't be appropriate. Uh, but like if, uh, you know, you write that and then like, uh, you know, dozens of people start organizing a hate campaign against you. Like, we don't really have the tools right now to ensure that those people are held accountable. And a lot of people will say, oh, well, the problem is that, uh, you know, the police just like aren't really up to date on things. And like, as soon as they kind of come around, uh, I'm sure that like, that will provide people with better protection. And in reality, I don't, I, I would not hold my breath. I don't think that's actually a solution because like, Fundamentally, the people that police tend to protect are those who are not vulnerable. Uh, like uh, these structures that we live in, they tend to protect those who are the most well off, uh, those who have the resources. Uh, and so like when I think of, you know, somebody who like may have had negative interactions with law enforcement in the past, uh, and is now like the target of an online hate campaign, I don't think that that's a solution. Uh, and so then the question is, well, what, what is our solution? Uh, and fundamentally, I don't think that we have good answers right now, uh, but certainly as far as that collective action goes, uh, it's the most powerful antidote that I've seen. 
uh, like just people have to get together. I don't think that they realize how much of a voice that they have uh, if they work in a group together. Uh, but it's a lot of responsibility. And I think that a lot of people are afraid of that as well, that like, if we do have the control, if we're not just following the script, if there's always something that we can do, that's terrifying. So like maybe maybe the real answer is, you know, if we want to live in this open source uh, utopia, uh, wherein like fundamental visibility isn't a problem because like the ideal case is going to happen. I mean, like, you know, maybe you might have bad uh, bad relationships with some people that you interact with, but like it's not going to result in like you can't live about your normal life uh, because you said something one time and now you are targeted by hate campaigns for the rest of your adult life. Like there are a number of people in open source who have had that happen to them. I'm very lucky in that, you know, there's just like probably a few really unflattering and like very frightening threads about me on 4chan and outside of that, like really relatively unscathed. So. I mean, that's a lot. What, what is your hope for the future of open source? What keeps you here? What keeps me here? I hope that nobody will ever have to go through that sort of thing again. And like one day that will be a reality. And I also hope that like, at some point, we'll be able to build these software systems together in order to focus on the things that we actually want to focus on. Like, I don't know if I'm going to be doing technology in like two decades from now. Like for me, it's very much a means to the end. The stuff that I do is I take like complex stuff and break it down and build platforms for people so they don't have to think about any of those things. That's like fundamentally what platform engineering is. And that's where I've spent most of my career. Uh, and most of the work that I've done has been open source because open source platform, it turns out it's a very efficient way to, to get things done. Uh, like, you know, when all of these companies all have approximately the same needs, like, sure, why not collaborate on those things? Although I must say uh, a lot of the efforts were more individual than I would have liked them to be. Um, but like, I don't know if I'm going to be doing open source in 20 years from now. Like, I don't know if I'll be writing software. Uh, like, I don't do software because I care about the software. I care. I do software because I care about the things that we can accomplish with it. So, like, I guess uh, to some extent, like, maybe that's a little bit limiting. Uh, like, it's very hard to think, like, I'm going to, you know, reach the top of this big career ladder. I'm going to write this big open source thing. Like, it's very unlikely that I'll do that. I've always maintained pre-existing projects because those things had value to people. Those things had value to me. I wanted to make it better. Uh, and so I did my best to get things there, but uh, you know, maybe that's not what I'm going to do. I don't know. I just want to see us all live in a better world where like a lot of the like problems that we're currently encountering, like fundamental problems, like uh, with climate change, a global pandemic, uh, massive systems of inequality. Uh, like, I wanna be able to address those things. Maybe the software is a way to get there, maybe not, I don't know. But uh, I mean, computers certainly touch almost every aspect of our lives. So insofar as that's true, uh, I think open source uh, will help us get there. And I think that many of the collective organizing methods through open source will also help us get there. Awesome. I, I'm so sad that actually we are almost out of time. Um, I just want to ask, do you have any other parting thoughts today for our listeners? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, I would say 
to our listeners, if I could dispel one myth about open source for you, it's that the idea of this 10x developer or a BDFL, fundamentally individuals don't make projects. Like even if an individual goes and builds a project, that project doesn't have a community spring out of nowhere ex nihilo. It has people that are using that project and contribute back like, oh, this didn't work in this way and this didn't work in that way, testing and feedback. And then those things get integrated and you get this bigger, better system as a result. Like you cannot be famous, so to speak, unless you have people that are your fans. And so like, to some extent, that is like a mutual relationship, even if a parasocial one. And I encourage people to maybe like, not focus so much on that and focus on being a good individual and focusing on the particular individuals within open source that like are getting the things done and working together with them. Uh, Cause I think that's the only way that you're going to be effective. A lot of people think that there's some sort of like ladder or hierarchy uh, and in my experience, like the only hierarchy is whether or not you're doing the work. So just do the work. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you so much, Alana, for uh, talking with me today. It's been a delight um, and I'm so excited to share this with the world. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you having me on the show.